All right, grab your Bibles, if you will. Remain standing. Luke chapter something, as soon as I can get my iPad to open. 1911, 2227. <laughs> if I can get... Yeah, what she said. <laughs> there we go. Now it's open. All right. Here we go, Luke chapter 19, verses 1, th- I'm sorry, 11, not 1, two ones, 11 through 27, says this, <clears throat> as they were listening to this, he went, went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king, and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and told them, Engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to, so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Oh, master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, You will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you, since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it at least with interest. So he said these th- to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Lord Jesus, give us clarity. Lord, we pray for your spirit, God, to open up your words to us. Lord, you wrote this, so Lord, we want you to explain it to us. Lord, open up your, your, our, your word to us. Open up my mouth, Lord, that I may speak uh, words that are your words that you desire for us all to know and to be encouraged by um, and to address this difficult passage. We thank you, God, for your word. And we thank you for the hope and the joy that you give us because of it. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Not wanting to work. Let's try this again. All right. So this morning, I've entitled my sermon, Leverage Your Faith, Build God's Kingdom. We'll get into that in just a little minute. A little minute? A little bit. <laughs> um, so are there times in your lives where you feel like you can just become overwhelmed? Like you hear all these things, all these different philosophies from all over the place. You hear from news sources, you hear it from your family, you hear it from your friends, you hear it from social media, you hear it from this or from that. We all get sources of philosophy and how you should think, how you should feel, what you should do or not do. 
ethics and morals, right? We get all these things from the voices all around us in our own mind. You know, we don't live life in a vacuum. Now, sometimes we can live our lives in an echo chamber. We can only surround ourselves with people who tell us what we think and what we should feel and we agree with. It's very difficult for us sometimes to encounter people with different opinions, people's thoughts outside of our own. And so when it comes to what we do in life, it can get so confusing. We're overwhelmed. Like, God, what should I do? God, what should I do? Where should I go? What should I think? What should I feel? You're just like, I just become paralyzed. I'm just, I don't want to do anything. Because whatever I do, I feel like it's going to be wrong to someone. This is where we can sometimes get into our people-pleasing, right? You're like, if it's going to make someone mad, it may not, may not do it at all, right? And so, um, and so as, we, as we think about this passage, how do we live our lives? What does it look like for us? Where do we gauge what's right? What do we gauge what is true? And where do we set the trajectory of our lives to live toward? Uh, so as you know, we've been going through the book of Luke. So we are about a year and a half in. Um, and so we are, we're plugging right away. Um, and so the, the whole theme of this entire th- series in Luke, the entire book of, of Luke, that uh, Luke gives us his, his opinion of like, this is the reason I wrote this book. We talked about it last week. The Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So basically the theme of this entire series is that Jesus is for everyone. Jesus has an open invitation for him, you know, to, for people to come to him. All people, no matter where you're at. No matter where you're at in life, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, all people are welcome to come to faith in Jesus, to allegiance in Jesus. It's an open invitation. And so as we get into our passage we have to ask ourselves that question. What do we do in this life? Where do we go? What do we think? What do we feel? Because that's kind of the overarching uh, theme of this passage is how to live our lives. What is the focus of our lives? And so my point here this morning is that we need to le- you know, leverage your faith to build God's kingdom. Now, what do I mean by leverage? So one of the definitions of leverage is to use something to maximum advantage, right? Kind of you lever, le, leveraging, like if you have power and authority, like you leverage your authority or you leverage your power in order to accomplish something, in order to do something. You might, you know, I might leverage my weight in order to sit on my child so that he can like st- sit still for a while. <laughs> I don't do that just very often. Uh, <laughs> you folks with toddlers, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> We you know, use or leverage something. So we're leveraging our faith. Faith is something to be engaged with, not just simply something to possess. It's not just a belief structure, like I've come to a mental knowledge or a mental thought. I come to this to see. It's how I see the world. Something that I possess, but also I use. I utilize I engage with. James, the author of of the book of James, writes in his letter, he said, faith without doing anything with it ends up what? Dead. Dead. It ends up dead. It ends up useless. 
So basically, it's kind of like a use it or lose it, buddy. Don't engage it. Don't use it. You lose it. It's something that needs to be put into practice. Because like we said, the word faith comes from the Greek word pistis or pisteo, which has more of this, this connotations, connotation of faithfulness, this allegiance to something or someone. So we pledge our full allegiance in Christ, not just a mental assent. And so to accomplish what? what do we, why are we engaging and using our faith or leveraging our faith? To do what? To build God's kingdom. Now, there's many different words I could, could have used on that one, but I chose to use build because I think it encompasses everything of what we're talking about. Um, like maturing or growing up, cultivating. We talk about cultivating your faith, cultivating your life, uh, adding to God's kingdom, cultivating God's kingdom, flourishing God's kingdom, nurturing God's kingdom, investing in and supporting God's kingdom, building and furthering Growing God's kingdom. So the first thing to recognize about our passage here this morning, I want to be really clear about this. The first thing we need to notice about this is this is not financial advice. He's not trying to give us financial advice of what to do or not to do. Um, and like talking about like this, this passage is also in, uh, in Matthew and in Mark as well. And oftentimes it's funny, I've heard this passage so many times used to talk about investing. And financially investing. Well, that's not the case in this passage. He has a very, this is a parable with a specific point. And so we need to get to that point. This is about faith. This is about what you do with your life or don't do with your life and how it ends up. Because here's the thing. This is the last narrative before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This is the last parable before stuff hits the fan. Right. That if we've noticed anything about the book of Luke is that Luke is building up. Jesus' ministry is building up, is building up, is building up to a climax, to a cultivation of the cross, of Jerusalem. But the majority of the, of the book of Luke is his journey toward Jerusalem, his last journey toward Jerusalem that lasts you know, a few months of his life. And so this is like the exclamation point. This is kind of the bookend of his ministry before he arrives in Jerusalem, where stuff gets real, right? And so what is Jesus' point? It's not, Jesus' last point is not about how your finances work. His point is about what you do with the faith of following him. Do you finish well? He's been warning, hey guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and, be su- and suffer and die at the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to die. I mean, crucified. But it's all, it's all good. BRB. LOL. I'll be, I'll be back. I will rise again. And so this is the final place of peace before they arrive for the Passover festival to get prep, prepared. So let's look at our passage. So let's look at the context. So everyone take your arms. Everyone kind of empty your... Get your arms out. Ready? Going up and then go down. And kind of bend your hands like this. Context. Context. <laughs> so 
So my, 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 my uh, New Testament professor would always do that. So we're looking at the context, what's before, what's after, what is, what is the frame by which this passage is in. And I never noticed this about this passage. Verse 1, or, or verse 11, 1-1, one, one. here we go. As they were listening to this, to what? What did we talk about last week? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Jesus went and he saw the life of Zacchaeus transformed. And Zacchaeus is like, man, I I tell you what, I'm a different man. If I've cheated anyone, I'm going to pay it all back and then some, like four times as much. And Jesus, I could just see Jesus like giggling, like chilling back, like, (laughs) salvation has come to this house. This is awesome. He was the son of Abraham. Oh my gosh, because, oh, this is why I'm here, guys. I came to seek him to save the lost. This is why. And then he goes on to tell this parable. So in the setting of Zacchaeus' house in Jericho, Jesus tells us this parable in the context of what Zacchaeus is doing with his faith. He's putting it into action. This dramatic chief tax collector's radical salvation is happening. You have faith. Now, what are you going to do with this faith or knowledge that you've been given? So let's look at, the, let's look at these things. So what was happening? So he tells this parable, this story about a nobleman traveling to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king, then to return. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. Jesus is the nobleman who's going to go and get crowned a king and then come back. So the context, if it's not clear, so this is talking about Jesus is going to leave when he is, you know, when he is crucified and raised and he goes off into his king, goes off and ascends into this kingdom. And then he will be crowned king and given authority and return. Okay. Just to be clear on that context, this is the, par- this is what this parable is meaning. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away. I am the nobleman. And I'm going to go away and be crowned king and come back in my full authority. And so what we do with that faith is now the comparison that he's, that he's going to make with the minas and all sorts of stuff. So let's look at, look at that. So 10 minas. So one minas is, is worth about 100 days of work. So we're talking about a third of a year's salary. Whatever that is, if you if you make you know sixty grand, it's like twenty thousand dollars, like that, or twenty five or thirty thousand dollars, whatever it is. And so this is a lot. This is a lot that he's entrusting to his servants. But here's the thing: there's ten minas, and there's not just the three servants. There are ten servants. So each servant gets one minas. But it's interesting to look at this. So there's there's two, and then then we don't have this number. But then the subjects um, later on, verse verse fourteen, he talks about. But his subjects hated him. So he has ten servants and an unnumbered subjects. Two separate words. This is servants meaning doulos or slaves, bond servants. And so these bond servants is basically kind of their 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 concept of employment, if you will. Um, you, you work for someone, you indenture yourself to someone's service, and they provide shelter, food, and, or money, or p- you pay off a debt because you bought something from them and you're paying off a debt, so you indenture yourself to them for a time. It's kind of like a credit card system-ish type, you know, type thing. 
And so he had these servants, and but this was a lot more than just that. So, so this word is doulos for servant or bond servant. But the word for subjects is a completely different context overall. This word politai, you know, you can see here the word politic, right? These are their citizens. These are the citizens under this nobleman. So these are the people that ought to be submitting themselves to him. Who should be submitting themselves to Jesus in this moment? The Pharisees, the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, right? Everyone he comes into contact with. Why? Because he's God. Jesus is God made, made, you know, who put on human flesh and walked among us, dwelt among us. He came. God became a man and dwelled among us. John 1. Right. So the Pharisees should be, who, who are the subjects, who are the polit- politi, the citizens of Israel, should be submitting to their God, but they're not. And we'll get to their stuff in a moment. But, so what did he say? What did he do? He entrusted them. This, this was an investment, a cultivation. He, he was giving his servants all the same thing. One mina. About a third, 30 years work. A lot of money. Here's 20 grand. Do something with it. Wow. What could you do with 20, 30 grand to make it, to multiply it? Start a business? Invest it? What could you do with 20 grand? Investment, cultivation, flourishing, increasing it, increasing what they have been given. Remember, they were all given the same amount. The difference is what they did with it. They're all given one minus. We are all given faith. So that, here's that question. They were, they were, the, the difference is, what do you do with what you are given? And as you see, the results are, are a little different. So one guy, he increased it by tenfold. Wow, awesome. Another guy, he increased it by fivefold. One guy didn't increase it at all. He was afraid. The servants were entrusted with the nobleman's money. It's interesting that his servants were, were entrusted with the money, not his subjects, his followers. So Jesus is saying, disciples, I have given you this. I have given you faith. I've given you all faith in this moment. What are you going to do with it? You see that the rest of the world, you see the rest of, the rest of my subjects, the rest of the nation of Israel doesn't recognize me and doesn't want me as their king. What are you going to do with that which I have given you? Because you are my servants. You are my followers. You are my disciples. And what, was it, what were his instructions? What were, what were his, his um, servants to do with what he had entrusted to them? Engage, verse 13, engage in business until I come. Engage in business. Right? We don't know what that is. Buying land, planting vineyards, they weren't told what to do. But we can, you know, we can assume that their businesses had something to do with that thing. Because he, he didn't t- say until later to invest it in the banks. And there's a whole other reason why they shouldn't do that. Because it was either that they were going to be getting interest from Israel, which was against their Jewish law, or that they were having to do business with the Gentiles, which was also forbidden by their Jewish law. <laughs> so... We can assume that the kind of business that he's talking about here is something along the lines of like buying and owning land, maybe planting a vineyard, doing like a bread business or like doing something that 
brings profit, that, that yields something, increases the amount of money, cultivates or builds something. Um, so the, the nobleman was going on a trip to do what? To become a king. So he's already been given authority over this land, but now he's being given authority above authority. Being given all authority, all rulership, all reign. Being given a kingdom. The nobleman where he's at, he's being given complete authority over that entire land. But, so let's look at what happened to them. So two of the servants grew, flourished, and matured their minas. And they received what? Blessing, honor, and authority. We don't, we don't know uh, what, exactly what they did, but we do know that uh, they recognized the value of what they were given and the importance of using what they had to grow, flourish, mature, and build what they did get. Focusing on what they were doing in order to bring more for their master. For all intents and purposes, we can see that the, all the, these people intended to give all of what they got and all of what they earned back to their master. And then when the master saw what had happened, when the, when the master saw that they took what they were given and that they were faithful with it, what did he do? He blessed them. He said, well done, good servant. Well done. Awesome. Good job. Rock on, man. Found it. High five. Good job. This is awesome. You did well. I'm so proud of you. We have the Father's recognition. The Master is not domineering. He's not a domineering. You did you know, good job. You did well. Now get back to work. No, he celebrated them. He, 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 he praised them for their work. Here's the thing we can see, he see from this. He sees them. He notices them. He blesses them. The heart of their master is good. He's kind. He's generous. For all intents and purposes, this noble man is a noble man. In every way, a man of good character. He recognized their faith and allegiance to him. What did he say? Because you have been faithful in a very small matter. right? I will give you more. He recognizes. He rewards. Like he even said, he gave them, what? Authority to rule over you know, ten or five towns. So he, rec- he, he, he praises, he blesses, he recognizes, he sees. He blesses. He notices and he rewards. He is trusting and entrusting. He is not a domineering, corrupt, and coercive tyrant. He is a benevolent ruler. As a friend of mine liked to say, God is a, benevol- is a benevolent dictator. But then there's that guy that guy the one servant protected well I kept it safe for you God or I kept it safe for your kept it safe for you master 
I kept it safe. I didn't do anything with it. But I made sure not to lose it. I did the bare minimum. I kept it safe. Gandalf would be proud. He kept it secret. He kept it safe. Most scholars I've read agree this man's accusation of the master was not founded in reality. He's like, oh, I know that you're a hard man. You collect where you reap where you don't sow and you do this and you do that. Oh, you're a harsh man. Oh, uh. Is that this servant had no clue who his master was. He had no clue of the master's character. <laughs> this is actually, you can actually kind of read this response from the, from the, the, uh, the nobleman, kind of sarcastic. He's like, oh, I am, eh? You think I'm, really? Wow, wow. Yeah, no. Way off, dude. You, know? <laughs> you think you know who I am? The, ser- the servant's accusation of a false identity on the master and his unfaithfulness to do anything with what he was given results in even what he has, what, being taken away. Because he didn't know his master. He didn't spend time with his master. However, you know, he's not, he, this guy is not given rulership. He's not recognized as faithful. He's not blessed. But however, it's interesting. It seems that this is as far as it goes. It doesn't seem like there's extra penalty on top of this, right? This guy remains a servant, but doesn't get punished further, but he also doesn't get blessed further. Because the story just kind of ends there with him, right? He just says, take what he has and give it to that guy. That's it. Interestingly, the faithful servants not only get authority over cities, but here's the thing that's interesting. They get to keep their investments. Right? Because what do you say? Give it to the man who has ten. Not the one that I gave and entrusted and then took it back. Trust, entrusted to the one who has this. Right? So like, this would be like, you got to keep the $300,000. They got to keep the you know, the, the $150,000 that they were given. And not only that, but they then got to go and rule cities. They got to rule 10 cities. They got to rule five cities. Plus all the things, the investment that they were given. They got to keep it. Then the guy with the 10 minus gets one more. And everyone's like, what? Hey, that's not fair. Master, he's got 10 minus. He doesn't need any more. Well, guess what? God's not fair. Like I like to say, the most inconsistent person in all of creation is God himself. Every time he does something, he does it so differently. Every single time. how How many different ways does he heal the blind man? How many different ways does he call out the Pharisees? How many different ways does he do this or that? God is inconsistent. God is not fair, but he is just. He treats each person individually, personally. God doesn't play by our rules and our perception of right. He gets to define what is right and good. Like the other parable he told about all the people who came and worked for him for a day and everyone who started in in the morning, 
And all throughout the day, he made the agreement. Hey, you're going to work for me for, den- for denarius. They're like, yep, I'm in. Cool. Right? And then like all the people to the very end of the day that worked for like only an hour instead of like 10 hours, he like was getting, handing out den- you know, one denarius to them. They're like, oh, man, I've been working for him all day. I'm going to get like 10. And they got one. Hey, that's not fair, God. Who are you to ter- determine what's fair and right? Over God. God determines what is right and fair. We can kind of see, we can, we can see these, these different people all throughout this passage. Like the ten. People who are given that, the ten minas. Or I'm sorry, that earned the ten minas. They were super faithful in what they got. And they were able to increase it like by tenfold. We can see these and maybe attribute these to like the twelve apostles. Right? They would go on to build the church, to build, to build the kingdom. And then maybe the, the, you know, the people who were, who were like the five, you know, got the five minas. These are like his followers, the ones who were there and they were faithful and they would go forth and they would multiply. The people who were following, like the 120 people that were following him, were maybe like the people with the five minas. But what about the person that doesn't follow Jesus? They, they listen to him, they enjoy him, but they don't do anything with what they were given. They don't follow Jesus. They don't abandon their lives and, and go get, get up and follow him. Right? This can be attuned to the guy who just hid his meanness and didn't do anything with it. The guy who heard Jesus in Capernaum. The guy who heard Jesus in, in Caesarea Philippi. The guy who listened and saw the miracles, who maybe have gotten healed himself or herself, but didn't do anything with the faith that Jesus was offering them. They hid it. They put it away. But then we've got that guy, but we also have those people. Those people. Those people. (laughs) You know those people. (laughs) This is like our divine, well, that escalated quickly moment. (laughs) Wow! Not expecting that right turn. And take all these people who didn't want me to be ruler over them and bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Wow. What do we do with that? <laughs> well, let's figure out what we do with that. Um, so this is, these are his subjects. All, right. all the way at the very beginning of this passage, we see this. Um, but his subjects, what, hated him. The Jewish people hated Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus. Because he wasn't the type of Messiah that they that they thought he should be, they were having their thought of what was right above what God said. So, but these are free people; these are his subjects, ones who are not his servants, ones who are not following him, ones who God had not entrusted with his treasures. There's an interesting example of this. So, this they, you know, they, they sent a delegation to go and fight this. There's actually an illustration. It's not really the point of this morning, but, but the, the people that he was telling this parable to would have understood this. So during, during Jesus' time, Archelaus Herod, Herod, Herod the great son, um, was such a harsh ruler that the people rose up when he went to Rome to go and become king in that area. And the people de- sent the delegation in order to fight Archelaus becoming their king. And they won. 
And so I think like that's they they understand that. So the, the, the that delegation was actually successful. Like I said, it's not really the point, but they would have understood this whole concept of a king wanting to go get kingship and people not wanting him to you know to be king. So the master comes back, and what does the master do when he becomes a king? Well, he does what kings do to his enemies. Right? It doesn't go well. They were killed right in front of him. This parable will be followed up in, in the next chapter uh, when we talk about the vineyard owner. So in, in a few weeks or so here. Um, but but Jesus' point here is that God is against those who are against him. So when you when he says, you know, pledge your full and undivided, un, you know, undivided allegiance in God, full pouring out, giving everything of who you are, everything of what you do, everything of what you think, giving your whole self, your whole life, the way that you love your spouse, the way that you love your kids, the way that you in, in, interact with your, with your job, the way that you interact with your friends and your family, everything of who you are and what you do is fully allegiant to God's way of doing things as your king. But those who don't, think about this, your complete and undevotion against God. This is unbelief, unfaith, disbelief. God is against those who are against him. You don't want to be ruled by me? Fine. That's treason. Congratulations, you've become an enemy of God. To go against the king is to be a traitor. To go against God is to be an enemy of God. And it's interesting how James 4 will even, even pinpoint, but pinpoint that and say that love for the world is to be an enemy of God. But that's a sermon for another time. <laughs> this passage is about God's justice. Because God has to be just if he is to be loving. He is loving because he is just. In fact, this week I read a, a, an article about this guy who has been on, de- he was the oldest resident on death row. 32 years on death row and was finally executed. But it's interesting that he even himself knew what he did was wrong. He, it seemed like he had come to faith in, in jail, but he recognized that unless he was executed, there would be no closure and justice for his family, for what he had done to his family member. He understood himself that he deserved justice from the American justice system of execution. He recognized that. He knew that he had been forgiven by God, but there's that element that unless God is just and willing to punish injustice, then he's not truly loving to those who are victimized. God's justice against sin and death is coming in this passage and is coming in the form of the cross so that those who do deserve the, the, the consequences of, ex, of execution in this world can be forgiven by the God of the kingdom of God. To pay for sins, to cover with grace. His death is coming. God's justice is coming. But woe to to those by whom it comes. The Pharisees. Which 
We'll, we'll come to when we get to Jerusalem. This message is to and about the Pharisees. They're about to enter Jerusalem. He's about to be betrayed, unjustly tried, tortured, crucified, murdered, and die at the hands of these subjects, this delegation who don't want him to rule over them or to be his Messiah. And so our passage today is one, this, is, this wraps it up. To everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, this is talking about faith, remember, even what he does have will be taken away. Our passage here this morning is both an invitation and a warning. Goodness and joy or destruction and death. Like Deuteronomy 30, chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 15. See today I set before you life, prosperity, death, and adversity. You want it to go well with you? Do life my way. You want to face opposition and adversity? Do it the way the rest of the world does it. This is the, the, in the, our passage in Deuteronomy is all about kind of wrapping up the law for the Jewish people. He's like, I've given you everything. Here's all the tools you need for life and godliness. Second Peter says, for I have given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, what are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the life that I have given you? What are you going to do with the love and the hope and the goodness and the joy that I've given you, that I've set before you? Because we live in a, in a world where we know what happened after the cross. We know that his body is not there in the tomb. We know that he is risen. He is risen from the dead, which we got to celebrate last week. And that's the cool thing about Sunday. We get to celebrate it every week, every day. He is risen. There it is. He is risen. And he is still risen. Jesus is still raised. Jesus is still in you. Jesus is still your hope. Jesus is still your joy today, every day, every hour of the day. See, today I have set before you life. Will you take it? Will you embrace it? Will you live it? Will you enjoy it? I said, Jesus is the nobleman who has gone away to receive a kingdom for himself, to receive authority to be king. He is, in our passage here today, in, in this time, he is the humble servant. But he will be king of kings. Like he is today. He is today King of kings and Lord of lords. He has been seated on the throne next to God, the Father Almighty, in his presence. And he will come back again. He will come back in return. Little side note, this one's this little little freebie. So I did some. I found out, had a conversation about the, the, the donkey that Jesus rode into town on, which we'll talk about next week in the triumphal entry. Um, little little preview for next week. Here we are. That riding in on a donkey was a sign of kingship. He was coming in on a donkey as a, as saying, "I am coming as the king." But he had what tied to him? A colt, a young horse, itty bitty horse, right? That had never been ridden. So he's coming into Jerusalem, representing the old way of... This is a Jerusalem king. Like, this is the old way. And he's putting that away with this new horse, this new colt. And what is he going to come back on? A white, a white horse. 
the king of kings riding on a white horse. Our king is coming back. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is actually supposed to be a joyful letter. Like, guess what? Our king wins. Don't get confused and scared by all the weird stuff that hits the fan over here. Weird beasts and all sorts of craziness and people. Skip to the end. Right. Who wins? Jesus. Our rider on the white horse. Our victorious king who's coming back to receive us unto himself. To take us to a land where there's no pain, no suffering, no dying, no death, no depression, no anxiety, no broken bodies. This front row right here just went, hallelujah. (laughs) All of us. All of us just rejoicing. How will he find you? How will he find you? And this way he talks about this, which we'll get to in, in chapter 21. Is this, how will he find you? He says, the intention of our lives is to, what? To invest, to grow, to build, engage. Be those who have been given and engaging in, the, in, in, in you know, inheritance and are engaging in the business of the Lord until he comes. So what does this faith look like? How do we live our lives during this intermediate time? intermediary time. So this is the way, right? So this is going to be the way in which we live our lives. I have, this is Paul saying, I have been crucified with Christ and I know I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how we live. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's reminding them that they are free from the law, from the striving, from the working, from the toiling in order to accomplish salvation or earn God's favor. He's telling them and encouraging them, you don't have to become Jews to be joyful. I am in you. He's describing for them the meaning of life, what life means for them now that they have been set free from sin and death. Each of us, we, we are each given faith. What do we do with it? What we do with it will vary. And that's and and, and, you know, and the and what we cultivate with it will vary. And that's okay. That's okay. Not everyone will be a Paul or a Peter or a Timothy. Not everyone will be a Barnabas or a Polycarp or an Irenaeus. Not everyone will be Billy Graham. I try, but I'm probably not ever going to be Billy Graham. You know? (laughs) Or his son. Or his grandson. But this is the, we're not all going to be like everything that we desire to be. But we'll all be what God wants us to be if we're willing to let God help us be who He wants us to be. Many of us use you know, are the people in the backs, backs of the books in, the, in these letters, the friends, the footnote. Are we okay with being the footnote in God's kingdom? Yeah, because we're accomplishing what God's called us to do. It doesn't matter how big or small, you are pivotal in the kingdom of God for what God wants to accomplish for his kingdom. Engage. With the grace and with the faith God has given you, engage in God's business until he comes. 
and desire to be faithful. Here's what he describes it to the Romans. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly. As God has distributed a measure of faith, what? To each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in, the, in, the, in service. If teaching and teaching, if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Leverage your faith to build God's kingdom. Faith is to be engaged with, not simply something to possess. God is not hard and exploitive, but he does expect his people to make an effort on his behalf. That's why he calls us co-laborers. We are co-laborers with Christ. It's James Point. You've got it. Use it. Can you imagine being Iron Man and, and never using your suit? You've got the suit. You've got the armor of God. Use it. You've got the goodness of God. You've got the joy of God. You've got the fruit of the Spirit. Use it. Enjoy it. Flourish it. Cultivate it. You'll never know what you've got until you use it. Take risks rather than give up in fear to accomplish the building of God's kingdom. Cultivate life in this world. Be a part of God's kingdom so you can enjoy the fruits of your own co-laboring. And what does this look like? Worship. Give, listen, engage. Like this, come to Sunday morning, right? Our big circle gathering, as we call it. Come, worship, engage, give. Be generous, listen, worship, sing, participate. The second, fellowship. You know, our act groups, our, our middle circle, right? It's this fellowship with one another. This joint, you know, grab some people together, study a scripture, share a meal together, invite people over to your house, break bread with one another, or do, you know, come here or whatever you want. Engage in fellowship with one another. Discipleship, mentorship, investing in, in the lives of each other. Cultivate relationships and do it on purpose. Boldly proclaim, love others, do intentional acts of love and good. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Live the goodness of God in your everyday lives. And living our lives by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for you takes courage and boldness. To get out of our comfort zone and be strong and courageous as God you know, said to Joshua over and over and over again. No one outside of the household of faith is going to cheer you on in this world. That's what the purpose of the church is, is to, is to spur one another on, to be each other's cheerleaders. Right? You got this. Go. The Lord's with you. We're with you. I'm with you. Courage is, isn't, courage is, is not the absence of fear, but it's the decision to act despite one's fear. Fear isn't, uh, faith isn't the absence of doubt. Faith is the, the decision to be devoted or to believe despite your doubts. I love how N.T. Wright calls it. He says, doubt your doubts. Don't believe everything that you think. 
Our doubts are, I love this, this quote I was, I was given this week. Um, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we ought. I'm sorry. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. William Shakespeare. As the Bible says, take every thought captive. Why? Because the mind is raging. The battle for your mind is raging. Fear, doubt, temptation, anxiety, hatred, selfishness, worldly living, idolatry, temptation, corruption, starts in the mind. Which is why that word metanoia, right? Change your mind. We translate it as repent. Change your mind. Change your thoughts. Change your life's direction. Change your mind. Not just change, not just change, but an intentional directing, steering your mind so that you can discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Why? By not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Focus your life. Leverage your faith, your love, your gifts, your abilities, your leadership, your passion to build, cultivate, mature, grow up, build up the kingdom of God. And watch as God works incredible things in and through you. It's not going to be easy. It may not always go well. But God will be with you. God promises his presence. He will be with you. And we will get to see and experience and celebrate when our King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns. When we get to see him face to face in his final and full glory and kingdom. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the the reminder, the encouragement, and also the sober warning and the sober reminder this morning. God, I pray that you would engage with us, Lord, to invite us into, to leverage our faith, to engage with our faith, to put it into action, to, to put it into practice so that we can experience your flourishing, so we can experience your goodness, so we can experience the love within, with, among your people, your presence among us, Lord, so we can see and experience you more and more every day and get to experience the fruit of lives that are, that are lived by following you, Holy Spirit to experience the fruit of you, Holy Spirit. Your love, your joy, your love, joy, your peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, we want you. We want to live with you and by you. To enjoy you in our lives every day. And Lord, to see what you want to do in your church, in the city, in our, in our lives, in our friendships. And Lord, in the lives of people who don't know you yet. Lord, use us, Lord, to, 
to reach into a needing world and bring people into your kingdom and celebrate with joy. Use us, God, for your, your kingdom purposes, for your glory and for our joy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.